And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh and brought it from brought the ark. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these? mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. For the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line. He came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting in his seat by the road watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. And who, when the men came to the city, told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he, he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there were also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward in his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth and her pains became, came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thanks, Tom. So when I was growing up, my family had a dog, his name was Chrissy. And Chrissy was a standard poodle. And uh, Chrissy was an extremely obedient dog. Uh, she would do whatever you said uh, to the T. So much so, we never did this, but I was confident that if I 
took her outside and went down the street with her, uh, she would listen to exactly what I had to say. I have a different dog now. Her name is Ruby. Some of you have met Ruby, and uh, she's very different. She doesn't care about pleasing us all that much. When she's in the house, she's fairly obedient. She's stubborn, but she has this thing with squirrels. She is obsessed with squirrels, and uh, literally will watch her sleep sometimes, and it looks like she's trying to catch the squirrel in her sleep. And so you take her outside, and she's just all over the place. Like, I, I w took her outside for a walk this past week to Pinewoods Park, and there's probably 12 squirrels. And no matter what I did, she was dragging me along to get those squirrels. And I've tried different kinds of collars. I tried a ch choke collar. She broke it. I had, uh, right now she has a harness on, and I've literally been running down the street or the, the sidewalk or whatever, and literally, she'll see a squirrel on one side, and she'll be pulling me to this side, and then she'll see it on the other side. She's pulling me to that side, pulling me all over the sidewalk because she sees a squirrel, and she's going to drag me after that squirrel no matter what, she's going to get it. We're looking at the, pass the passage we're looking at today is a very interesting passage uh, because in chapter 3, as we ended chapter 3, we ended on a note of hope. Uh, Samuel has been installed as the prophet of God. People recognize him as the prophet of God. And there's a note of hope that now Israel is going to be restored, but it takes a downturn pretty fast. We see that the Israelites enter into a battle with the Philistines. And what's interesting is that the narrator doesn't tell us why they fight the Philistines. And it's interesting because it's just not in the scope of reference. It, it's not important to the author of 1 Samuel why they've entered into the battle. But they enter into this battle with the Philistines, and they we're told that they are defeated. And after they are defeated, the elders of Israel get together and they say, Why has the Lord defeated us? Why has he defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, it's interesting that they have this theological worldview that they don't say, Okay, so was our strategy wrong? I mean, did our soldiers not fight hard enough. They go right to God that God has not given us the victory. But it seems they don't stay there long enough. And another interesting part of this passage is that, again, we looked in chapter 3 and saw how God had established Samuel as the prophet and everybody in the nation recognized him as the prophet. But in this passage, after they experience defeat, they don't reference Samuel. Samuel's not in this story at all. Now, you would think that if they experienced defeat and if they believed that God was the one who caused them to experience this defeat, you'd think that they would go to Samuel and say, Samuel, tell us what God says. What do we have to do to change? But they don't do that. They're not interested in hearing the voice of God. And they come up with another plan. Their, their plan is to take the ark of God and to bring the ark of God into battle. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, was uh, a box, basically, that housed the Ten Commandments and uh, some other things. And the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. Now, we know that God can't, it doesn't dwell in a temple made by human hands, as the Scripture tells us. It doesn't dwell in a box. But it was a symbol of His presence. And we see in the Scripture in other places that the Ark of the Covenant was used in the context of battle. We saw that back in the, in the conquest narrative. Remember when God brings the Israelites out of, out of Egypt and then 
Uh, Joshua sends spies into the wilderness and says, spy out the land of Canaan. And these spies go to the land of Canaan and they, most of them come back, 10 of them come back and say, yeah, it's a great land, but these, these people are giants. There's no way we can take them. But the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, yeah, God can give them into our hands. And then they go and they attack Jericho, its fortified city. And, and they're commanded by the Lord to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. In Joshua chapter 6, it's described what, uh, the, what was happening with the Ark of the Covenant as Joshua commands the people. In Joshua chapter 6, it says, So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So the people of Israel march around uh, the city of Jericho seven consecutive days. On the seventh time, seventh day, they, they do it seven times. And then after they do that, they let out this loud shout. And when they do that, the ground shakes and the walls of Jericho fall down. And Israel goes in and they decimate the city of Jericho. And God gives them the victory. So the elders here of Israel probably think to themselves, now if we bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle, just like Joshua did, then God has to give us the victory. And so the Ark of the Covenant is brought and it comes into the camp and it tells us in the text here that when it entered into the camp that there was this loud shout, this, this shout of joy. And it says it was so loud that the ground shook. We see that the Philistines themselves, they hear the sound and they think to themselves, we're, we're doomed. They had heard the stories about what the God of Israel had done in the past. How he had defeated the Egyptians, how he had defeated uh, those in Canaan. And now they think, well, we're next. But they think, we're not going to go out without a fight. Let's, if we're going to, to, to be defeated, let's just keep fighting. Fight as hard as we can and who knows what might happen. And everything in the story points towards a victory for the people of God. Uh, this week, uh, this passage is not a passage I was super familiar with, and I was translating it this week. And uh, one of the nice things about translating is that you, it kind of forces you to slow down and just take each sentence and each word for what it is. And I'm going through this passage, and I get to this point, and I'm thinking in my mind, all right, God's going to come through. God's going to bring the victory. And I literally stopped what I was doing and put on a worship song about God bringing the victory. But that doesn't happen. Israel gets decimated. Huge casualties. Those who don't die return to their homes, meaning that they gave up fighting. Eli's sons are killed. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. And we see that the victory doesn't come. And we learn in this passage that God will not follow our plans. We have to follow his plans. God won't follow our plans we have to follow his plans. You see, there's three stances we can take in our relationship with God. Number one, we can obey God. Number two, we can disobey God. Or three, we can disobey God and then try to bring him along with us. We learn in Psalms chapter 78 that the reason why the Israelites experienced uh, this defeat was because of idolatry. They were serving other gods. And yet in this passage, they're serving other gods, and yet they want to use the true God to bring them the victory. But it gets even worse than that. 
Eli's sons are killed. And a messenger runs to Shiloh. The messenger uh, has dirt on his head. His clothing is torn, indicating mourning. And he runs to uh, Eli to tell him the news. And as Eli hears the news, he falls off of his chair. He breaks his neck and he dies. And it's even more tragic than that. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, uh, she is with child. And when she hears the news, she goes into premature labor and as she's dying, she cries out and calls the child Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? And she says, the glory of God has departed from Israel. Another thing I find interesting in this passage, that as we see this tragedy unfolding, you would think that in this story, the most tragic thing was that Eli lost his sons. That Phinehas' wife lost her husband and father-in-law. But the thing that seems to irk them the most, that's so tragic for them, is the fact that the ark of God has been taken. Notice what it says in the text. It says that when Eli heard that the ark of God was taken, that's when he fell off. It wasn't when he heard that his sons were killed. It was when the ark of God was taken, that's when he fell off the chair and died. The wife of Phinehas, she mentions in the story, mentions the glory being revealed, and she emphasizes the fact that the ark has been captured. And so to them, it seems that even worse than the fact that their loved ones have been killed is the fact that the ark of God has been taken away. Now that might be hard for us to understand thousands of years later because, you know, to us it was just like a box. But the ark of the covenant represented everything that was good about Israel. It represented God's presence and God's power represented the fact that God had chosen Israel out of all the nations, that they would be their representatives and that God would dwell with them. And now it's all gone. God has left. The glory is gone. Everything that made Israel Israel was gone. It, it would almost be like in our culture, you know, maybe the, the most important thing to us as a nation, nation is this idea of freedom. And we have symbols of freedom like the the flag and uh, the White House and monuments and things like that. And it would be almost like if an, a foreign country came in and took over the White House. And, and if that happened, it would have to be really catastrophic. It would have to be really bad because of how fortified that place is and how important that is to us as a nation. And so if that happened, if the White House was taken over, we'd have to think to ourselves, there's no more freedom. Freedom is gone. And that's what happens to Israel here. They think the glory is gone. God has left us. Now there's a lot of differences between Israel and between the United States thousands of years later. There's many differences, but I think there's a common thread that connects us to Israel from thousands of years ago. And I think that both of us have tried to go our own way, but kind of drag God along with us. And as we've d done that, the results have been catastrophic. The results have led us to darkness. Generally, Americans throughout our history have believed in God, in, at least in some sense. Especially until fairly recently, most people would say that they believe in God in some sense. But I think as a country, we have a tendency of going our own way, doing things our own way, and then tacking God on at the end. This, this evening, 
If you watch the Super Bowl, you'll probably see some players afterwards thanking God for the victory. Now, for some of them, it's probably a sincere thing. They're believers. They love, love God, love Jesus. And they're just sincerely thankful for the opportunity that they've been given. And thank God for that. Others, though, you see that, you know, maybe they, they are not Christians. They're not following after God. Maybe they have done things kind of even underhandedly to get to the top. And then they get there on that platform and they're like, oh, thank God that I got here. And it's like, I have this dream, I want to get to this place of prominence, and God's going to bring me along with him. It happens in the realm of sexuality. Uh, hot button issue today is homosexuality. We've gone down this path of saying that homosexuality is not even something that we uh, should accept, but it's something that we should celebrate. And not only should we excel, uh, celebrate it, but also God has to celebrate it. And many churches have gone down that path of saying, yeah, you know, you read the Bible and it's maybe taken out of context or it's not what, we see, what it seems to be or maybe it's just an archaic book. And, and God really does celebrate homosexuality. And so we go this viewpoint of going down the way that culture tells us to go and then bring God along with us. It can happen with our expectations Specifically, it happens sometimes, especially in the word of faith movement, where we have this dream of what we want to accomplish. We want to be successful. We want to have wealth. And then we're like, okay, God, give me that. God, I'm believing you to give me that. And we have these dreams of what we want, and then we're like, God, take me there. Maybe it's even with innocent things like the, our dreams for our kids, we want our kids to grow up and get a good job and make a lot of money and uh, get married and have two kids and a dog and live the American dream. And that's our expectation. And we're like, God, take us there. But maybe that's not God's plan for your child. Maybe God's plan is that your child would never get married, would go to a foreign country and make Jesus famous among people who have never heard about him. So we have these expectations, we have these dreams, and sometimes we try to bring God along with us. And I think that one of the most important questions that our culture gets us to ask, the most profound question that we are told we need to answer is the question, what do you want? We say, what, what do you want? And it starts with even the little things. That, I mean, these restaurants have exploded where you can choose different options like Chipotle or Blaze or Subway where there's different choices and you can choose thousands of different combinations and the reason it's so popular is because you can have whatever you want. And so we're, asked this, we're forced to ask this question in our culture, so what do you want for your job? What do you want for your family? What do you want for your sexuality? And we're forced to ask, ask these questions as if that's the most important things in our lives. The most important thing is, what do you want? Whatever you want, go for it. And then once we figure out what we want, we're like, all right, this is what I want. God, give it to me. Rather than listening to God's dreams for our lives. I think that's the sad state of spirituality in our country. That's the state of Israel. It says in the book of Judges, which is kind of, at the end of the book of Judges, is kind of near the time period where Samuel was written. It says at the end of the book of Judges, the last verse, in those days there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We want what we want. And there's no changing that. There's no challenging that. And if someone would even tell us that our desires, what we want is wrong, that idea in our culture is repugnant. So as a culture, we don't listen to what God has to say. We listen to our own desires, to our own hearts, to tell us what we should want. And then we try to bring God along with us. And as a result, I believe that the the effects have been catastrophic. We experience a darkness in our country unlike we've ever experienced before. Mental illness, depression have skyrocketed. Belief in God has waned. And, and you see, I was looking this, this, this week at kind of some statistics and things like that, and it's amazing the number of people who have in, in 2001, there was about 81% of people who said they were Christians. Today, it's about 63%. So you look at that time frame, and in that time frame, also, there's been an increase in mental illness, increase in depression, increase in violence as, this, uh, as these things have changed. And you think about what has happened in that time frame. And you see, the biggest thing that happened was the invention of the smartphone in 2007, where we can have what we want at our fingertips, that we can figure out what we want at our fingertips. Any question that we have, we can answer it on our phones. And I believe in part that has led us down this path of trying to do life on our own. We see that one in two marriages end in divorce, 31% of children not, won't grow up in two parent households. Pornography has become a way of life. Uh, according to Matt Walsh, he says, we spend 4 billion hours a year watching porn. Sorry, I've just understated the problem. We dedicated well over 4.5 billion year, hours to watching porn on one porn site in 2016. Humanity spent twice as much time viewing porn in a year as it is spent existing on the planet Earth. It all adds up to over 500,000 500, years worth of porn consumed in the span of 12 month, months. Since 2015, human beings have spent one million years watching porn. It's no wonder that the porn industry is worth $97 billion, which is about 100 times higher than the $750 million it was worth 20 years ago. Today, porn grosses more in a year than Hollywood. It also brings more money than the NFL, NBA, MLB combined. I mean, you think about that, and I think about the Super Bowl being the, tonight, and you think about the fact that it's like over a million dollars for a 30-second ad. You know, when you think about all those advertisements, the ticket sales, the merchandise sales, the food sales, the licensing deals, and all that, and that is nothing compared to the money that's spent on pornography. We live in increasingly polarized times where we can't disagree with one another without hating another person. We can't disagree. Democrats and Republicans can't even hardly speak to one another. We live in times of violence. Nearly every month, there's some kind of senseless act of violence, whether it's at a school, a church, shopping mall, daycare center, some kind of shooting. Church attendance has declined rapidly in the last 20 years. And it seems, in a sense, it's almost like God has left. It's almost like God has left the scene. But here's the good news. Make no mistake, just because God has left 
or it seems like God has left, doesn't mean that God isn't working. Because we see in this passage that the Ark of the Covenant is captured. It's taken to the land of the Philistines, but we'll learn in the next two chapters that when the Ark of the Covenant is in the land of the Philistines, that God is going to wreak havoc on that country as it's there, so much so that the Philistines are going to, to put it on a cart and say, we don't want to have anything to do with this God. Here he is. Take it back. See, God was working even though it seemed like he had left. It wasn't that he wasn't working. He wasn't working in the context of Israel's plan. He was following his own plan. God won't follow our plans. He has a plan that's better and greater than we could ever imagine. See, it's easy for us to come up with our own dreams and our own plans and then try to bring God along to help us achieve those dreams. And I was struck by this this week as I was preparing this message, and it was kind of interesting how it worked out because uh, Wednesday night I couldn't sleep uh, for whatever reason. My stomach kind of hurt, and uh, I thought I'd get up and work on my sermon, and I, I never do this at nighttime. I'm not really a night person, so I get up and worked on my message between 1 and 4 o'clock uh, Thursday morning, Wednesday night. And by the end of it, I was just kind of like half awake, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even know if this is going to make any sense. And so then the next day, I was doing some other things, didn't really work on it. Um, but there were some things going on in my heart and things that I was concerned about and dreams that I wanted to accomplish with God's church that weren't coming to fruition. And as I was struggling with those things, I, I just kind of went into a place of despair and darkness. And then I was talking to my wife, Stephanie, and she kind of spoke some truth into my life. And then the next morning I get up, and I'm working on my sermon on Friday morning, and I'm reading through it, and I don't really remember everything that I wrote. And it's like God hit me with a two-by-four right, right in the head. And it was like exactly what I needed to hear. I'm like, did I, I don't hardly even remember writing this. I was half asleep, and it was like, it's not about your dreams. Because it's easy to follow our own dreams, even if those dreams are good dreams. But they're not God's dreams. It's hard to follow God's vision, God's plan, and to do it in his power. God won't follow our plans. We must follow his. The late Senate chaplain Lloyd Oglivio said this, Our need to be in charge of ourselves, others, and situation often makes our relationship with Christ's Christ's life, uh, our biggest power struggle. We're reluctant to relinquish control and allow him to run our lives. We may believe in him and be active in the church and Christian causes, but trusting in him as Lord of everything in life can be scary. He says, even though we pray about our challenges and our problems, all too often what we really want is strength to accomplish what we've already decided is best for ourselves and others. Meanwhile, we press on with our priorities and our plans, we remain the scriptwriter, casting director, choreographer, and producer of the drama of our own lives, in which we are the star performer. I mean, our plans are easy to follow because we think our plans are best. We think we know best for what's best for our lives, what's going to most satisfy us. We could, couldn't be further from the truth. God knows what we need. God knows better than we know. 
His ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That question, what is it that you want, is not a very good question. A better question is, what does God want for you? It's a far better question because God knows better than we know. After a long day of marching, uh, Robert E. Lee and his uh, troop from northern Virginia set up camp at a near Appomattox Courthouse. And the night before, uh, April 7th, uh, Ulysses S. Grant had sent a letter to Robert E. Lee and suggested that they retire, or that they surrender. And uh, Robert E. Lee refused. He was a, he was a valiant warrior. He didn't want to give up the fight, and so he refused, but he offered to meet Ulysses S. Grant the next day to discuss a possible peaceful outcome. And he had this struggle of what to do because his side was losing, but he didn't want to give up the fight. But he had watched a battle, the battle uh, near Cumberland Church in Farmville, and he had watched it through field glasses, and then he came to the realization that there's nothing that else that he could do but go to Ulysses S. Grant and see what the terms of surrender might be. And he said that he would rather die a thousand deaths than to go to Grant and talk about surrendering. But he realized it was the only option. And so he went to Ulysses S. Grant the next day and they met at the McLean Courthouse, or McLean House. And he said, we're pressed to surrender. What are your terms? And you think, what would the terms be for surrendering in this civil war? You think maybe they're going to have to pay the North back. Maybe they're going to go into prison. Maybe they're going to become slaves of the northern troops, servants. But Ulysses S. Grant told them something completely different. He said, here's the terms of surrender. Go home, live your lives. Stop fighting. And so soldiers who hadn't eaten in days were given meal rations. Horses and mules were used, rather than in battle, they were used to plow fields. And as they went home to their homelands, they had surrendered, but in that surrender, they really started to live their lives. Sometimes we think that when we come to God, that God has this terrible plan, he just wants to suck away our joy. When we, find, we find that when we come to him and we surrender our lives to him, when he, we give him everything, when we say, God, not more than what I want, what do you want for my life? It's then that we start to truly live. Matthew 11 says this, Come to me, all who, are la all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God will not follow our plans. We must follow his. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good and perfect, Heavenly Father, that you know what we need before we know what we need. We also know that you have good intentions for us, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. And if you loved us that much, how much more would you do in our own lives? How much more do you care about the small details of our lives? 
Lord, I pray that we would be people who listen to your voice, who hear what you have to say to us, that we wouldn't have our own opinions and plans and dreams and agendas and try to drag you along with them, but we would listen to what you have to say to us, that we would follow after you with all of our hearts and your power and your strength because we know that as we surrender, it's then that we find true life. In Christ's name I pray.